Hey guys, just hang in there. I'm gonna start inviting. I'm in the process of inviting a bunch of people. Be right back promptly at 7:20. Give me a minute. We are back. <laughs> Just want to try to get the uh, soundboard to load. Okay, the mic is giving me trouble. Anyways, thanks and welcome back to this edition of the Unsanctioned Citizen PM. Appreciate you being here. We're going to get started with the continuous chapter reading of the Willful Blindness book. This would be... Willful Blindness, How a Network of Narcos, Tycoon, and CCP Agents Infiltrated the West. Very important reading. I just need to control this soundboard. Get the crime wave. That was uh, Crystal Castle's crime wave. I think we're going to forego the, the intro because plenty of people are here <laughs> to get started. And then I hope people will just kind of filter in. So here it is. Um, oh, I did want to go over one piece of news. There is a piece of news before I get started here. Um, let me just get to it. So there was a man in uh, Vancouver, apparently. He's going to be extradited to the United States. This is news. A BC man awaiting extradition to the United States for alleged dark web money laundering. So a West Vancouver man is waiting extradition to the United States after police linked the deaths of two American naval officers to an alleged dark web drug and money laundering operation in BC. Mounties arrested Thomas Michael Federuk on May 24th. 
we might have even been reading about this. On a provisional arrest warrant, Paul Anthony Nichols of Surrey in England was simultaneously arrested in the UK. The pair is set to stand trial in the Southern District of Georgia on drug and money laundering offenses. The BC RCMP's Federal Serious and Organized Crime Team began investigating an alleged dark web global drug trafficking vendor called Canada One in 2017 said in a Thursday news release. A U.S. investigation into the fentanyl-related overdose death of two Navy petty officers in October traced to the toxic substance to the vendor, which used packaging labeled East Van Eco Tours, according to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Southern District of Georgia. The dark web is assessed through, or sorry, is accessed through special anonymizing and encryption-enabled browsers that hide the user's digital footprint, but the BC RCMP were able to connect Canada One to Federic and Nichols. So this isn't going to the bigger problem, the large hulking elephant rambling around, shambling around in the casinos, but it is it got a couple little small fish. It's like, oh, we got the bad guys, but keep the moneyed ones. Okay, here we go. Narco City. Let's just keep it rolling. <laughs> All right. Reuters reported in 2019 that four of the 19 Sam Gore syndicate members, including Chai Lopsi, are Canadian citizens. The cell of elite members from the Big Circle Boys, 14K, and Sunyi On triads is believed to earn $8 billion to $15 billion per year, dealing heroin, methamphetamine, ecstasy, and fentanyl. It was a place that reflected the dark imagery of Psalm 23. In the valley of the shadow of death, six city blocks, ruthlessly segregated from Vancouver's luxury towers. Heroin, crack, and fentanyl ruled. Sex workers disappeared without a trace. Many thousands of addicts populated it. Bent, wasted figures staggering from needle to needle, wearing torn and muddied clothing. Hustlers exchanged cash and drugs in broad daylight. Addicts huddled in alleys, injecting and smoking. This place robbed everyone of humanity. The junkies, narcos, pimps, even the cops. You got desensitized to the endless brutality of the downtown east side. It was the place where Vancouver police officer Cal Dosange found a woman curled in a fetal position on the public washroom floor. Her hands were bound in ropes, and she was half-naked bruised and lying in filth. She had failed to pay her heroin debt, so a gang of drug dealers raped her for six hours straight. Oh my god. Dosange knew how the Eastside's debt collectors worked. They shaved women's heads and made them into walking advertisements. It was symbolism. The dealers wanted to signify what happened to clients who didn't pay up fast. But Dosange would never forget this woman in the public washroom. It was the worst drug violence he'd seen short of death. Please tell me who did this to you. He said, I'm sorry, she told him. They're here every day, and you aren't. But we can get you out of here, he told her. No, she said, you can't. For Dosange, working the east side, it felt like shoveling water. Many of the addicts were indigenous boys and girls coming from deep poverty, place was a magnet for misery. New addicts arrived constantly. The supply of drugs was seemingly bottomless. 
You could put one dealer in jail and ten street kids were waiting to fill his spot. The narcos had no fear because Vancouver's prevailing laws and social attitudes were slanted towards them. So the cops and gangsters faced off every day, almost like punching the clock. And they got so familiar they knew each other by name. Like Stan, the six foot four, 260-pound man who commanded 80 soldiers in his chapter of Red Alert, a First Nations gang that enforced Eastside drug debts and got supplies from Hell's Angels. Sometimes Stan and Dosange would stand toe-to-toe, and Dosange would try to get into Stan's head. Dosange could bench 415 pounds, so he wasn't going to be intimidated. More importantly, he kept his cool, and he was open to dialogue. Sometimes he would try an angle with Stan. He would point to a crowd of drug-crippled women on the corner at Maine and Hastings. The bones of their faces were shrunken and twisted from daily heroin abuse. You may have daughters one day, Dosange told him. You stay in this life and it's coming back to you. Your children will end up out here. And to his surprise, years later, Stan called back and asked Dosange for his for help getting out. It was one of those milestone events that underlined what Dosange knew about the east side. The justice system had little or no influence on it. The hole was far too deep. The east side was governed only by supply and demand. Another case that Dosange would never forget was that of Pete Hodson, a promising recruit from the affluent suburb of White Rock. Hodson had been a University of BC basketball star. He was well-known in White Rock's Christian community, a kind of officer who should have rocketed through Vancouver Police Department ranks, but he fell in with hardened Eastside beat cops who kind of saw addicts as just junkies. Hodson started tailgating with these officers after chefs drinking beer cases from in-squad car trunks, trying to decompress the Eastside's relentless entropy. But it sucked him in. He spiraled so far, so fast, he started dealing drugs himself, using his status and his badge as gun Vancouver and Vancouver police databases. He ran an efficient operation, even recruiting a crack addict to sell marijuana for him. When I covered Hodson's sentencing for the Vancouver province, the addict, a man named Tyson Pappas, told me the east side must have triggered something in Hodson. He was an officer who could be warm and friendly with the addicts, Papa said, but he could turn cold and vicious, threatening torture sessions on Papa's if he lost his supply of drugs. I've been out on the street longer than he's been alive, Papa's told me after a judge handed Hodson three years in federal prison. You can't go from a well-off home, good family, sports, smart police officer to suddenly dealing drugs. There's another guy inside and he just started to come out. But the officers who survived the illogic of the east side came away with hard-earned wisdom. Doug Spencer was one of the Vancouver Police Department colleagues that Dosange really respected, partly because Spencer was the force's criminal intel specialist. Spencer had a phone bill three times bigger than the force's chiefs because he was talking to sources day and night. Dosange and Spencer Spencer had the same compassion for addicts, the same willingness to dialogue with gangsters, and the same clear-eyed view of the east side. This was a place created by negligence and greed in high offices. Dosange and Spencer agreed that you couldn't arrest your way out of the east side's narco-chasm in a million years. Dot, dot, dot. 
Spencer joined the Vancouver Police Department in 1988, the same year that Kwok Chung Tam and Chilop Si landed in Canada. Spencer's dad was on the drug squad for many years, and Spencer always liked how he tried to help people on his beat, handing out his card and trying to get addicts into rehab. So Spencer decided to try the job himself. He started working in the wire room and quickly built his criminal intelligence files. Right away, he learned about high-level corruption. One of his early wiretaps was listening to the boss from an elite Nangdrith Nangita Mafia clan in North Toronto uh, trying to make inroads with officials in a big VC union. Soon, Spencer joined Vancouver's gang unit, and he started developing informants in the South Vancouver districts. Gangs were all over the city, but the action was in downtown Eastside. All of these people struggling with addictions and gangsters fighting to feed them. After Vancouver's Expo 86 World Fair, when the Hong Kong investment began flooding into the city, the heroin arriving in Vancouver port started going exponential. The addicts loved China White. It was highly pure and much cheaper than Mexican Brown. The overdoses started to soar, and HIV infections caused by addicts sharing needles in the east side approached rates only seen in sub-Saharan Africa. The east side wasn't just pavement and tenements. You could see third world conditions and sharp relief in small parks and green spaces. There were masses of people laying out in the grass amid tattered makeshift tents and rusted shopping carts, hustlers and traders haggling over stolen goods, addicts shooting up, and alcoholics drinking from jugs of hand sanitizer. It looked like a war zone refugee camp, and literally the paramedics who came to work in the east side received war zone training. It was the best approximation for the deadly conditions they would encounter. It was the perfect contained environment for 24-7 industrial-scale drug dealing. More high-grade heroin and cocaine was coming into Vancouver ports than anywhere else in North America. The police had given up arresting addicts for drug possession. The courts couldn't even handle the drug dealer cases for the most part. Spencer felt the politicians in B.C. had essentially legalized hard drugs. And just as a break-in, they did legalize hard drugs in they did it meanwhile police started to see interesting indicators in other areas of Vancouver a surge in empty condo towers and luxury cars the signals that the DEA agents were are taught to recognize in places like Miami and Panama as evidence of narco economies by the early 1990s it was becoming clear the top players were getting more international the Hells Angels had dominated BC multi million dollar marijuana market before 1990, but by 1995, Vietnamese gangs controlled the market, and these gangs morphed into the United Nations, a violent dial-a-dope gang that started dealing directly with the Mexican cartels, trading BC bud for cocaine pound for pound. It was a massive, mutually beneficial trade, because BC had a massive surplus of potent weed, and Colombia had a massive coke surplus. At the same time, Spencer recognized the big circle. Next page, please. Boys were playing in a different league, ten times more corporate and connected than anyone else. They all they had almost no overhead because they sourced China White, aka number four heroin, in northern Thailand. 
One unit, about 1.5 pounds, cost about $5,000 US raw. Once it was shipped to Hong Kong, it cost 11000 per unit. In Vancouver, it was sold for $50,000 US to the Vietnamese gangs in the big circle used as distributors. And for distributors in New York and Toronto, it cost about $100,000. In BC, Spencer was looking at players like Kwok Chung Tam and Sui Hung Mok. If you ever wanted to find them, you just went to the Richmond Casino. No one else came close in casino crime and heroin imports. And almost all the businesses in Chinatown were paying the Big Circle Boys protection tax. They were great at recruiting young kids to collect their debts and put drugs on the street. And that's how Spencer started to learn the hierarchy. He was dealing with the street kids in East and South Vancouver and working his way up. Big Circle Boys were always looking to insulate further and further away from the streets. Yeah, they acted like gangsters in their 20s and 30s, but the smart ones, if they made it to 40, they started to look very businesslike. They were much better at blending into society than the Hells Angels and even the Calabrians and Sicilians. And they got a pass because most police in Canada didn't understand Asian organized crime. You had a 270-pound guy on a Harley Davidson wearing a skull patch on his leather jacket, and then you had a 155-pound guy with a Mr. Rogers haircut driving his kids to piano lessons and looking like an accountant. Who was going to draw police attention? As Toronto crime, as the Toronto Crime Unit Detective Ken Yates presciently told a U.S. Senate committee in 1992, after arriving in 1988, the Big Circle Boys were already recognized as a criminally brilliant entity in Canada and making other triads look like amateurs, while using the country's lax immigration laws to springboard heroin into New York City, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. Yates told the committee one unidentified Toronto Big Circle Boy, a refugee claimant from Guangzhou, was arrested with ledgers showing he had imported between 800 and 1,200 pounds of heroin to New York between 1988 and 1990, making wholesale profits of $72 million, most of which was transferred back to the Far East. Yates also warned that Canadian intelligence indicated more triad leaders were planning to immigrate to Canada before Hong Kong converted to Chinese rule in 1997, and that Canadian laws were mostly powerless to stop this. On the bright side, at least one alleged Sunni-owned boss, Hong Kong movie mogul Hyung Wa Kyung, had his Canadian visa rejected due to his efforts in the Hong Kong Commission, the Senate committee heard. Meanwhile, in Vancouver, Spencer was learning that to really understand the big circle boys, it was useful to look beyond their dominance of money laundering and casinos. Anyone could see that and dig into their high-tech skills. Oh, high-tech skills. Vancouver police would raid some moldy, rain-sogged monster home in East Vancouver and found 100,000 fraudulent credit cards, each with a $10,000 limit. Agents came up from Los Angeles once and asked to examine an embossing machine that Vancouver police had seized from a big circle boy lab. Two weeks later, they returned and told Spencer the single card printing machine was tied to $100 million in credit card fraud in California. Another time, Spencer was contacted by the U.S. Secret Service in California 
They told him that Sui Hung Mok, the elite Richmond casino loan shark, was allegedly connected to 10 million counterfeit currency. Yeah, the big circle boys were the leaders in bringing heroin and human trafficking and sex slavery to North America, but they also were cannibalizing financial institutions and passing massive fraud insurance costs onto everyone else. Another thing that amazed Spencer was the big circle boys. Killing was merely a financial transaction. There was no passion or anger in it. They talked on the wires about death threats to Canadian judges, lawyers, and cops. Anyone could be eliminated by paying a gunman 50 grand. And for high-value internal targets like Betty Yan or her former boss, Hong Chao Raymond Huang, chances of solving the case were slim and none. They'd fly someone in from Hong Kong, hand him a gun in a Richmond parking lot, and he'd be back on a flight to China before the police zipped up the body bag. The most mind-blowing factor was the political ties in China. Spencer was mentored in BC by Asian organized crime experts like Pat Fogarty and Murray Rankin. He was always hearing how connected the people like Mock and Tam were. Spencer taught that he that the Red Army roots of the Big Circle Boys, coupled with corruption in the People's Liberation Army and Chinese Communist Party, meant elite gangsters had a range of incredibly powerful sponsors, and it was hard to believe until you saw yourself. Spencer finally grasped it after arresting three men from China in a big extortion case. They had been threatening a Vancouver businessman over a debt in Hong Kong. They sent him a repayment demand and included the address of his daughter's school in Vancouver. When police followed the targets to a Kongji shop in Chinatown, Spencer had to rub his eyes and look twice at the cars that pulled up. One of the suspects got out of a sedan with a Chinese consulate diplomatic plates and someone pretty powerful in China appeared to be serious about collecting his debt in Hong Kong. Years of observations like this meant cops like Spencer and Fogarty in Vancouver and Yates in downtown Toronto were well ahead of Western criminal intelligence that became more widely known after 2017 with my reports on the Vancouver model of underground banking, reports on similar Chinese casino money laundering networks in Australia, and also revelations about the Sam Gore syndicate. Reuters reported in 2019 that four of the 19 Sam Gore syndicate members, including Chi Lopsi, are Canadian citizens. The cell of elite members from the Big Circle Boys, 14K, and the Sunyi on triads is believed to earn $8 billion to $15 billion per year dealing heroin, methamphetamine, ecstasy, and fentanyl out of China, Vietnam, Hong Kong, Macau, Myanmar, Singapore, and Malaysia. Using Vancouver and Toronto to infiltrate the West, they've become as wealthy as the Sinaloa and Medellin cartels ever were, but with more sophistication and less notoriety. The crime groups in Southeast Asia and the Far East operate with seamless efficiency, Reuters quoted one police official familiar with Sam Gore. They function like a global corporation. Hmm. The introduction of fentanyl and easy access to factory infrastructure in China and the Golden Triangle, along with deep underground banking capacity and diaspora communities worldwide, made the Chinese syndicates many times more lethal than the Colombian and Mexican cartels. When fentanyl came in, I just said, Whoa, Spencer told me. They now had no overhead. You can bring in a shoebox of fentanyl for about 70, 17000 and you can turn that into millions on the street. 
After Reuters broke the Sambor story, I started to hear more about Chilopsy from my sources. Only a select few Canadians knew it, but Chilopsy and his deputies had an extremely powerful base in Markham, Ontario. And my network investigations showed his global corporation could always be traced back to gambling, real estate, and construction businesses in Macau and Hong Kong, and the casino gangsters in Vancouver and Toronto. I also found that Sam Gore was financially tied to the elite tycoons that Gary Clement and Brian McAdams ID'd for the Canadian Commission in the early 1990s. This is a good example. In 2020, Washington, D.C., corporate due diligence firm Sayari Labs identified that Chilopsy's wife holds shares in Macau company licensed to run gambling junkets in, quote, an industry known to be dominated by the triads, unquote. And the couple are also connected to a conglomerate of construction and real estate investment companies in Hong Kong. I found Chilopsi's company, identified by Sayari Labs, received financing from the Hong Kong-Macau banking conglomerate built by Stanley Ho and Cheng Yutung. The, the particular bank was also investigated by U.S. law enforcement in the early 2000s for facilitating illegal narcotics and weapons transactions for North Korea and various state actors in Macau. Criminal syndicates working with the government of North Korea are flooding U.S., Japan, and other countries with counterfeit currency, fake cigarettes, and methamphetamines, the Wall Street Journal reported in 2005, citing a U.S. Secret Service probe against the Hong Kong Macau Bank. The ne network patterns were significant. Casinos, narcos, tycoons, real estate developers, bankers, weapons traffickers, and state actors, all linked to underground mainland China. So dot dot dot. I'm going to take a, a, just a mini break and just tell the audience that I will not be reading tomorrow because tomorrow is uh, June 21st and I'll be out on my own little um, personal excursion in, in the evening. Also Thursday I'll be heading out to Austin City Council to try to make a wedge on the whole biometric regulatory front. See if I can just get up and speak for a minute or two on that. Um, but just kind of get in there and meet people and and just start talking about biometric bans, uh, limitations on, you know, this erroneous technology. Starting first in the public sector and then working to put regulatory conventions limits on what, say, Jeff Bezos does in Austin. So we'll start there, but Tuesday and Thursday won't be here reading, reading the meeting. So, but I will, I will be still reading, but just not, just not this Tuesday and this Thursday. Okay, back to the reading. The thing that Pat Fogarty couldn't understand was that police could clearly see in the 1990s how Vancouver was evolving from relatively small law-abiding citizen or law-abiding city into a drug capital with a corporate leadership to control global narco dollars. The casinos were used by the triads and used easily. Vancouver real estate was becoming not just a lockbox for drug money, but a dynamic high-tech international money transfer node. 
but there were no counterpunches from BC's establishment. The way Fogarty saw it, all the murders and violence in Vancouver were just byproducts of organized crime battling for laundering information infrastructure in BC casinos and real estate. In his analogy, organized crime was a big ship. The homicides were leaks in the hull. And Canadian peace were police were just chasing the murders, just bailing water and patching the holes. They weren't looking at the ship and how it runs. Fogarty would tell people, organized crime doesn't just exist on drugs, it exists on money. Drugs are just the path of least resistance to making money fast, but you have to recycle it and to use it. And thus, the profession of money laundering, the extraordinary economy employing thousands of Vancouverites, was born. The casinos were just the most apparent laundering machine, like the broad daylight drug deals in the downtown east side. You could actually see the criminal transactions, but the banks were used big time. The Big Circle Boys used prepaid instabank cards to move funds into Canada and back to China. Banks in Hong Kong with branches in China were instrumental. The gangsters would load 40 bank cards with $9,000 and then fly someone into Vancouver to withdraw the funds using runners to hit up different bank branches. You sent 10 gangsters armed with 40 bank cards each, and those get... Sometimes this reads like a math problem. I mean, I, I love Sam Cooper's work, but he does have math. It, 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 some of it reads like a math problem. Okay, so 40 bank cards each, and those 10 gangsters recruited a, a team of Smurfs to make withdrawals, and then suddenly you have... 500,000 in Vancouver to buy 10 units of heroin. Now you move it east across Canada or south into Seattle and down to California to double your money. Instead, you could buy a home and build an ecstasy lab in Richmond, Burnaby, or East Vancouver. You sell the drugs, collect the cash, lend it out of casinos, and get it back in checks or Instabank cards. You use your Smurf bank accounts to deposit the, fa the funds in various Canadian banks and smurf it back to Chinese banks. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, smurf it back to Chinese bank accounts and wire transfers of under $10,000 to fund more drug imports. Or you aggregate the funds in shell company accounts in Vancouver and wire it to Richmond Legal Trust to buy more homes in Vancouver. Launder mo more drug cash into these homes with a monthly mortgage. Come on, computer. Payments, and then use these homes as collateral to take out more loans to develop bigger homes or townhouse units in Vancouver. Repeat this cycle enough times. Now you are funding mid-rise condo developments in outer Vancouver suburbs. In the 1980s, the ancient Vancouver model era, you started as a narco and a casino loan shark in BC, physically sending drug cash back to China with money and mules. Or you did a bit of refining, you got your volume down for the flight to Hong Kong with bags of diamonds and jade. You worked your way up to laundering drug cash into stolen sports cars, then shipped them to China to sell at big markups. You slipped out a few heroin conspiracy cases in Canada and ran to Vietnam to work in a triad hotel if it just got too hot. You just avoided getting done in the United States at all costs. I like that sentence. You just avoided getting done in the United States at all costs. So the United States is the heavy. 
But even Chilopsi, convicted by New York City's tough prosecutors for running heroin from Toronto into New York, got released early, returned to Canada, and just set it up in Asia. And that was until Australia finally took him down with a stunning extradition case in December of 2020. I'll come back to that case. It says everything about how badly Canada has been infiltrated. Back to the early days of the Vancouver model, you kept at it, and you kept recycling the drug imports through Vancouver and Toronto. And voila, you came back to Canada in your 50s or 60s with a bag of golf clubs on one arm and a Hong Kong starlet on the other. Now you're not even a hidden investor with old-school Hong Kong tycoons and the Vancouver condo developers. You've got a construction company tied to Macau hotels and many directorships in Hong Kong-listed companies. You're opening developing luxury condo units in Vancouver and selling blocks of pre-sale homes in Hong Kong, Singapore, and mainland China. A perfect way to commingle drug money and condo pre-sale money into your Macau property holding shell companies. And you have transfers coming in on paper from companies registered in the Cayman Islands or the British Virgin Islands into legal trust in Vancouver, allowing you to co-invest in more luxury towers. And guess what? When your new Coal Harbor Tower gets an upzoning permit, allowing you to build 50 floors into Vancouver's precious skyline, City Hall is effectively laundering about $50 million of your funds. How does it work? Well, you're buying upzoning to build more condo units, and the city is taking something called community amenities contributions in exchange. These funds pay for Vancouver's beautiful public art displays and parks and daycares. Think about that once more. You're laundering, launder drug money is going to into Vancouver's community building to pay for statues and cobblestone squares and daycares. They might as well put your name on the park. Vancouver models city building, it was no exaggeration. Police saw the drug money coming out of the downtown east side and into cheap single-family homes in East Vancouver and circling the world and coming back in mansions, townhouses, and empty condo towers. So yeah, Fogarty did believe this narco infrastructure to a significant extent had formed the bedrock of Vancouver's real economy. There were some cases that became emblematic in his mind. There was a big building used by a money exchanger, a prominent guy in Vancouver. He shipped massive amounts of weed to the United States and had truckers hauling U.S. dollars back across the border. They needed to exchange the funds back to Canadian, so they got the building and registered a currency exchange. This was systematic casino-level money laundering, a blatant currency refinery. Fogarty's team made the case to seize the money-changing business as proceeds of crime. It was a nice little win, but still totally reflective of Canada's piecemeal policing. And the interesting twist? The narco-trafficker had been renting this building from, P from the B.C. government. It became clear to Fogarty that some high-ups in Victoria didn't want that fact to come out. Fogarty remembered all kinds of similar conversations about money laundering with high-level people in BC. For some reason, he couldn't interest these justice officials in a concerted attack on the professional money laundering infrastructure. The deliverables in the eyes of certain people just weren't worth it. And again, the casinos were the most obvious example. Nobody in Victoria wanted to address it. 
Fogarty couldn't remember how many times he talked about the gangsters bringing cash and hockey bags into the casinos. His teams laughed at it. It was just common sense. This was dirty money. You could take any jury off the street, show them the tapes of criminals coming in and every night with loads of cash, no qualifications for their incomes, calling themselves import-export industrialists. Okay, fine. You tell me that. But the duffel bag in your hands, where is that $300,000 of cash coming from? And Mr. Big could never answer that question. So just stop there and think about it. Any layperson would say something is wrong here, especially when you compare this unexplainable cash to the prominent movement of drugs in Vancouver. So the next question in a responsible jurisdiction would be, what do we do about it? And the sad truth in BC was nothing. The government, the police, the prosecutors, the judges, the developers, the bankers, the realtors, and lawyers, and accountants did nothing. It was beyond willful blindness, Fogarty thought. It was almost criminal. Canadian leaders evidently didn't deal with criminals or mediate in Macau-style casino battles, as Fogarty had seen in the case of Tong Sang Lai and the water room triad versus Chip Tooth Koi and the 14K and Big Circle Boys. But on the other hand, BC officials did nothing to stop the infiltration of Macau-style money laundering. You can't just allow narcos to buy up Canadian land with no regulatory response, but they did. So, in Fogarty's analogy of the Vancouver model, money was the root of all evil. Everyone was making money in the casinos, making money in real estate, making money selling cars, building city parks with upzoning fees from Hong Kong tycoons and Panama Papers condo developers. And the provincial tax revenue was floating everyone's boat. The good guys are making money, and the bad guys are making money. So what's the harm? Dot, dot, dot. Like so much the downtown east side, the harm was easy to ignore if you averted your gaze from the contained killing zones surrounding Maine and Hastings. But like horrific images that refuse to stay buried in a guilty conscience, the bone fragments of DNA of dozens of drug-addicted sex workers slaughtered on a pig farm just outside of Vancouver came back to haunt BC's establishment in February of 2002. Since the 1980s, a serial killer named Robert Picton had been scouring the east side for prostitutes with impunity. He lured these vulnerable women to his rural property where he and a circle of criminals had a makeshift dance hall. When the drug parties ended and the guests left, Picton would choose his target and end her life, sometimes using handcuffs and a knife and sometimes offering a syringe of heroin that actually contained antifreeze. He would run through the run the bodies through a meat grinder that he used to slaughter his pigs. Picton and his accomplices operated in a moral vacuum because police leaders had paid little or no attention to the scores of women vanishing from the east side, a transient place that drew vulnerable girls from across Canada, many from First Nation reserves. And although Picton had been on a list of suspects after an investigation into the east side's missing women, had finally started in 1998, his spree continued until a rookie RCMP officer <coughs> executed a search warrant on Picton's 
acreage. Police eventually found the DNA of 33 women on the farm, but before he was convicted on six of those murders, he admitted to an undercover officer in prison that he had killed 49 women. And in 2005, when I was studying journalism at Langara College in Vancouver, this story, the victims, the drugs, the unfathomable institutional failings that had allowed downtown Eastside to thrive was the one that stayed with me. I interviewed Maggie DeVries, the sister of one of Picton's victims, Sarah DeVries. Sarah was a young black woman who was adopted into a well-off West Side Vancouver family. Perhaps she felt misplaced despite a loving home. She gravitated to a life of heroin and sex work in the East Side. She was last seen in April of 1998 at Princess and Hastings, a five-minute walk from Maine and Hastings. Sarah was aware of the dangers surrounding her, and she left it behind a journal of poems and warnings to other East Side women, begging them to escape before heroin addiction devoured them. Vancouver police called Maggie DeVries in August of 2002. The quote from Maggie that stayed with me underlined the life-altering pain that families of murder victims experience. Everything changed, Maggie told me, when police said that they found Sarah's DNA in, soil, in a soil sample on Picton's farm. Eventually, when BC held a commission of inquiry into the uncountable cases of missing and murdered women across the province, for me, the testimony of one Vancouver police officer stood out. Detective Constable Lorimer Schenher was given the whole job of investigating the women missing from the downtown east side in 1998. Schenner had never investigated a murder or led a major investigation. As I reported for the Vancouver province in 2012, Schenner could never understand why the justice system discarded evidence from the one victim who had escaped, Robert Picton. Schenner's first big tip came from a man named Bill Hiscox who had worked for Picton. Hiscox and Picton had killed Sarah DeVries, and she was just one of many prostitutes delivered to parties at the pig farm. Picton had tried in 1997 to kill another Vancouver downtown Eastside prostitute and was still trying to hire people to bring her back to, to be killed, Hiscox told Schenner. The woman had broken free from handcuffs at Picton's trailer and escaped after a knife fight with him. The woman reported Picton's attempted murder, and RCMP had collected Picton's blood-spattered clothing, a condom, handcuffs, and badges. Sorry, bandages. But the evidence wasn't tested for DNA, and prosecutors dropped the charges. Shen Her found the woman and interviewed her in July of 1998. And according to Shen Her, the woman said prosecutors and police dropped her case because, quote, they told me I wasn't credible on account of me being an addict, unquote. I felt it incredibly frustrating that her evidence wasn't heard. Jenner testified in 2012, dot, dot, dot. As a journalism student, I felt drawn to the downtown east side. It just didn't make sense for this place to exist in a city of great wealth and a country that I had been taught was just. At the time, Vancouver's mayor was Larry Campbell, former Vancouver area drug cop and BC chief coroner. He was a forcefully charismatic and persuasive man, so compelling that TV writers used him as a model for the lead character in several CBC dramas. 
Campbell's City Hall had a liberalized drug policy. The aim was to contain drug dealing in attics within the downtown east side and provide harm reduction by supplying clean needles, social housing, income, and medical support. Police enforcement was supposed to be a pillar of this policy, but in reality, street-level drug dealing was ignored. Another story that resonated for me at Lingara College was when our municipal politics class hosted Peter Ladner, a city councilor and former Vancouver Sun reporter. I asked him how Vancouver's leaders could tolerate the East Side's vast illegal drug market. That's the billion-dollar question, Ladner responded before rolling into an attack on Larry Campbell's policies and those of his right-hand man, Jim Green. Jim Green was responsible for promoting harm reduction services in the east side along with real estate development model of building luxury condos that included social housing units. Basically, building taller buildings with 80% of units sold on the market and 20% set aside for addicts and low-income earners. Ladner said Campbell and Green's policies had effectively built an industry around poverty and drug addiction in Vancouver. He used the inflammatory words, poverty pimps. Wow. And I quoted him on it. Green read my story in Lagara Voice, student newspaper, and called me threatening a, de- a defamation case. It was my first indication that I was starting to hit a nerve on the politics of real estate development and drug policy in Vancouver. The other City Hall story that stayed with me was the fractious debate in late 2004 over slot machines at the Hastings Park racetrack in East Vancouver. Great Canadian Gaming wanted the slots, but the majority of Campbell's left-wing party was against the plan. In 2004, Great Canadian Gaming had opened its flagship River Rock Casino in Richmond, and the company was increasingly influential in BC politics. Another major force in Vancouver politics, Connor developer Bruno Wall, lined up behind the Hastings Park's slot machine application. Campbell and several pro-developer colleagues, including Jim Green, split from their left-wing party, throwing full support behind casino and developer interests. It turned out that Campbell's vote for great Canadian gaming gambling application at Hastings Park broke a deadlocked council. In the aftermath, Campbell formed his own party, Vision Vancouver, but at the height of his power in 2005, he decided to leave City Hall. In 2007, he was made a Canadian Senator by Liberal Prime Minister Paul Martin, and in 2008, Campbell was quietly appointed to the Great Canadian Gaming Board, where he would be richly compensated for overseeing anti-money laundering compliance while collecting a salary as an unelected senator. BC citizens would see little of Campbell after these appointments. He continued to advocate for drug liberalization in Ottawa, and he also got involved in medical marijuana business. But Campbell's harm reduction policy, was it working out for Vancouver? It depends on how you look at it. When I joined the Vancouver province in 2009, the newspaper was in the middle of a year-long investigation into downtown Eastside's social, economic, and public health costs. My colleagues found that $259 million was spent annually on 260 groups involved in caring for and housing addicts. Certainly these programs saved or prolonged some lives. 
HIV infection rates dropped because of clean needles and supervised injections. It seemed the exponential curve of drug overdose deaths since the 1990s or 1980s was leveling off. But the programs did nothing to curve the downtown Eastside's magnetic death bowl. They possibly did the opposite. The Vancouver Sun found that in 2013, $360 million was spent by 260 social agencies and housing providers in the downtown Eastside to support roughly 6,500 people, most with addictions and mental health concerns. So, $1 million per day was poured into the wasteland, with at least 75% coming from taxpayers. And this was before fentanyl hit. In April of 2013, a Vancouver province editor told me that BC's provincial health officer, Perry Kendall, had sent out an alert alert about some new bad heroin causing a rash of ODs in the east side. I walked from our newsroom at 200 Granville and thought, and and through Vancouver's tourist-friendly gas town towards Maine and Hastings, it was a 10-minute trip I often took for reporting assignments. It never ceased to amaze me. Every step towards Maine and Hastings, you could see the growing entropy, the devolution from orderly corporate district to cash-in-hand drug market. I stood on the, the sidewalk outside East Hastings' supervised injection site, and I interviewed some addicts. I met a young man from Newfoundland who had been living in the East Side for nine months. He wore a baseball hat, and he looked relatively healthy and strong. In contrast to most of the people passing on the crowded sidewalk, he wasn't flinching or scratching at at needle sores. It was the first time I had heard of a fentanyl-devastating power. So I started my story with a quote that reflected exactly that. I heard it's something like 100 times stronger than heroin, says Michael Kennelly, a downtown East Side drugs drug user. About 10 or 15 people here told me they OD'd on fentanyl. I also interviewed an expert, Dr. Kendall, and he told me fentanyl stolen from pharmacies had been recognized before in Vancouver. But something very new was happening. Police were finding street labs producing illicit fentanyl, and it wasn't just going to heroin addicts. Gangs were mixing it into drugs like ecstasy, and methamphetamine. Unsuspected teens were ingesting potentially deadly party pills. And Kendall told me in 2012 there had only been 20 fentanyl deaths in BC, but in the first four months of 2013 there were already 23 fentanyl deaths. I need to take a breath. If we continue at this pace, we could see a fourfold increase in deaths, Kendall said, and it happened Fentanyl death rate started rising exponentially, and a BC public health emergency was declared in 2016. From 2016 through 2018, over 3,600 people overdosed in BC, mostly in the downtown east side, driven by an increasingly toxic drug supply, contaminated by fentanyl, carfentanyl, and other contaminants. Vancouver is at the epicenter of this public health emergency. A 2019 BC Public Health report based on coroner's data said. The report was full of tragic statistics and noted that indigenous people were dying in disproportionate numbers 
For me, one fact underlined the absurdity of BC's systemic problems. Fentanyl overdose deaths roughly doubled on the days when addicts received their social assistance. Addicts were immediately converting welfare checks into cash for drug binges and dying. And in the process, Canadian tax dollars were transferred directly into the hands of big circle boys who could launder the drug money in casinos and real estate and transfer funds back to chemical factories in China through the underground banks in order to produce and import more fentanyl to Vancouver, causing more overdose deaths. The vicious circle boys was more like it. But back in 2013, I hadn't yet made the connection. The downtown east side never made sense to me, and Vancouver real estate prices didn't make sense either. In isolation, they were illogical, but when you put them together, voila, I was following money from China through. It was like walking into a dark cave, and each story was a flash of illumination. As the stories added up, the big picture became more apparent. And some people in government, policing, real estate development, and U.S. financial markets were starting to take notice. One of them, legendary New York City hedge funds short seller Mark Cohodes, messaged me on Twitter in 2015, Hey, something seems to be happening in Vancouver. I knew that Mark had played a role in exposing bank frauds in the U.S. subprime mortgage crisis in 2008. He had his own chapter in the New York Times reporter Gretchen Morganson's book on the crisis, Reckless Endangerment. He was now living on a compound in the wine country outside San Francisco and looking for the next big short. So we started to share notes, and Mark's experience in detecting major frauds helped sharpen my analysis. We were both seeing Vancouver's real estate bubble as a massive scam similar in some ways to the 2008 U.S. housing bubble. But on Canada's west coast, the major factor wasn't a toxic mishmash of leveraged debt built into fraudulent mortgage loans issued to no-income, no-job borrowers. It was a mishmash of big bank and alternative lenders and loan shark mortgages mixed with organized crime, foreign corruption, and money laundering. Vancouver's real estate bubble was subcrime le- subcrime lending. <laughs> when you write fraudulent loans, the money goes to Goldman Sachs and to Wall Street, Codes told me years later. When we look back at my Vancouver real estate investigations, but in BC, it went right to hardened criminals, people involved in murders, corrupted politicians, fentanyl, kitty porn. It's all bad. So that wraps it. That is Narco City, and I, I presume that it is exclusively about, not exclusively about Vancouver, but mostly about what happens in the city of Vancouver. So we have we have four live here. Um, I'm going to open the phones because somebody asked me to, but it, you know, if nobody wants to respond to a call-in request to speak, then we'll leave it there. And the next time we will get to talk to you about Occam's Razor, Chapter 12. So is anyone interested in speaking about the chapter of Willful Blindness about Vancouver's horrible, horrible trend of heroin and money laundering and all the bad things that come with drugs, including missing and murdered indigenous women, which is kind of a, kind of a special thing for me. Going once, going twice, 
for the phones. Going three times. Oh, nobody wants to talk. So, as I expected. Um, so, thank you for joining us here at the Unsanctioned Citizen for our Unsanctioned Your Mind readings, summer 22. And uh, we'll be talking to you on Wednesday for Chapter 12, Occam's Razor. I hope you'll join us at 7.20 p.m. We will be back then. Come on, soundboard. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember?